Welcome to the Chris Rawl Show. My name is Chris Rawl. The NBA Finals are set. The Conference Finals are set in the NHL. A good time to be a sports fan. We actually don't have too many sports left before we go into that long, dark two-month stretch where we touch ourselves to the thought of football and just wish that anything but regular season baseball was on our television screens. However, we're not there yet. We still have a couple more weeks that are going to be hopefully sensational. I am writing a newsletter every week that ties into the world of sports. It comes out on Wednesday mornings. If you are not subscribed to it, you need to go and subscribe. It's very simple. You go to chrisrawl.com, you click on the subscribe button, you put your email address in, and every Wednesday I will send it to you. And especially those two dark months, I will have a lot of things to say about who the hell knows what, but I'm sure it will help you through the time in the same way that it will help me through. Okay, enough about that. Let's talk about what is going on right now in the world of sports. Today's episode, star power in the NBA and the NHL playoffs. Now, close your eyes. The most basic yet important question of the playoffs, it's quite simple. Who is going to step up? It's the thing that we whip ourselves into a frenzy talking about with our friends that ESPN is force feeding down our throat day and night. Who's big enough to play in the playoffs and who's not? Who's going to shrink and turtle up in a little ball and who's going to rise up and blast through the ceiling and all these kinds of things. And there's a lot of merit to this discussion. It's something that I find to be enjoyable if done correctly. Maybe not in the way that uh, a lot of people on ESPN normally do it, but I think it's a very intriguing question at every single level. I'm not talking just about stars right at the top. I think the question might be the most interesting at the bottom amongst depth pieces and role players, because it's hard to really understand how people in smaller roles are going to translate into the postseason, where your flaws, they are a much bigger issue than just in the regular season when people are not as game planning specifically for you. So role players, it's always kind of a toss up. Sometimes you got to see it happen a lot before you understand, okay, this person is built for the playoffs, the way that they play and, and what their flaws are. And this person, maybe not so much. And you keep going up your mid-level players. It's the same kind of thing. And it's also an intriguing process to watch and talk about. And once you get to the top, that's where I think I differ a little bit in how I discuss whether or not stars translate to the playoffs. Cause for the most part, I just believe if you're really good at your sport, you're going to be good in the playoffs. Now, how good you are is a great separator between your team being a contender or not. Because a star who is a little bit worse, but still a really good player, okay, that's an issue. Star who gives the same level of performance, that's awesome. That's all you could ever ask for. And the very, very, very rare stars who are amongst the best at their sport in the regular season and are able to somehow shift a little bit higher than that, that's the truly special athletes that every single team is searching after and saying, if we get one of these, it guarantees us contention for X amount of years. So all of this stuff goes into the playoff discussion. It's on my mind because the NBA finals are getting ready to tip off between Warriors and Celtics. It's on my mind because my team, the Colorado Avalanche are sitting there getting ready to play the Oilers in a series that promises that entire equation from depth pieces all the way up to the stars of the stars within the sport. So now you're sitting there and you're going, okay, can these stars, can they continue to play like stars? Can improbably, can they get even better? Uh, what role players are willing and able to give more? What role players can? Whose flaws are too glaring for the harsh light of the postseason? The blend of these things is the separator, like I said, between a contender and a pretender. So now we've gotten to the point where six teams left in those, the combination of those two sports. The pretenders, uh, I mean, you can't really fake your way into this point of the season. 
So now we start to pull threads and go, okay, let's talk about this, you know, at a little more nuanced level and start to understand the difference amongst this spectrum. The one game performances, you know, that's usually associated with your role players who can just go off in a game and completely swing a game or a series all the way up to the sustained performance. Just, okay, I'm getting a star level performance for X amount of games or this series or this postseason or this entire career. Again, it's really a really interesting thing to parse through and understand because role players are always necessary in order to win a championship. It's one of the things that I'm always sitting and thumping my Bible and preaching about. Saying, yes, I know we fall in love with stars and that's great. And, and you have to have stars. You have to. You have to have stars performing at the highest capacity to win. However, that does not guarantee that you win. You actually have to have all of those pieces come together in this all-encompassing kind of puzzle, right? Think about, uh, speaking of one-game performances, as I was thinking about this show, I'm just thinking about one very recently that didn't result in a win, and then one player specifically who kind of represents this in a way that's almost incomprehensible. But I thought back to last year's Chiefs-Bills playoff game. Best Best postseason game of who the hell knows how long in the NFL. For my money, I, I'm not really sure if I've watched a better game. Strictly because the quarterback play with Allen and Mahomes was so sensational that I can't ever imagine watching a funner football game. Now, there was one player specifically tied into that mix. Gabe Davis, wide receiver for the Buffalo Bills. And as time goes on, because he's a role player and because it was a one-game performance, I think this will just be lost into oblivion because it's easy to do that. And why would we remember about Gabe Davis in a way that we will remember Josh Allen's career and we will remember that game. Regardless of what happens moving forward, Josh Allen, I know is damn good at football and will continue to be that until he retires. And I think this will be one of the games we point back and go, yeah, the Bills lost, but man, you already knew you had something special with Josh Allen and you knew it even more with him walking off the field, even with the Bills being losers in overtime. But Gabe Davis, he's a, you know, depth wide out for the Bills. They had a normal season. I went and looked it up. He had 550 yards and six touchdowns receiving. Not, you know, atrocious numbers, but by no means would you ever point at that and go, Gabe Davis, he's just ready to explode. He's going to be one of these depth pieces that just rears his head at the best possible time. And somehow, a guy who had 550 yards receiving and six touchdowns, he goes into this game against Kansas City. And for whatever reason, I don't know if it was coverage base. I don't know if Gabe Davis just somehow channeled his inner Tyreek Hill for a game, he was unstoppable. He had eight catches for 201 yards and four touchdowns. This is in one game after piecing together six touchdowns receiving total for the entire year. It's just one of those miniature things. And you can go, I, I, this is just one of the ones that I remember so vividly because the magnitude of the game and how entertaining it was. But you can go through the postseason every year in any sport. You'll have these littered everywhere on the winning side and on the losing side. You put them together enough and you get a better grasp of a role player. Yeah, you're not a star, but you are kind of built for the moment. Your game translates to the postseason. The most unsustainable individual performance from a role player that somehow was sustained is Robert Ory in basketball. He's the one that I will always point to. Big Shot Bob, again, defies everything that I understand about role players, which is you are a role player. <laughs> you can't possibly affect the game this many times in the biggest possible situation, because how could you? You're a role player. You're there to draw a charge and sometimes play 10 minutes a night and just chill out. You're not asked to do what LeBron James needs to do or for or any of his teammates, Tim Duncan with the Spurs or Hakeem Olajuwon with the Rockets or Kobe and Shaq with the Lakers. But Big Shot Bob carved out this niche in the minds of NBA fans forever 
because not only was he a part of seven different NBA championship teams spanning those three teams, two with the Spurs, two with the Rockets, three with the Lakers, but he garnered that name Big Shot Bob for a reason. He was just hitting shots. He would somehow be in the right place at the right time. If there was a movie about it, I would point it and say, this is not realistic. This is stupid. This is like Rudy on steroids, some little doofus who's, who makes the big sack 20 different times. That's impossible. But Big Shot Bobby's doing it his whole career. He's doing it with Houston. He's hitting that shot in game four of the 2002 Western Conference Finals against Sacramento that brings LA back from the brink of a 3-1 deficit, ties it up at twos. They end up winning that series in game seven overtime with a lot of shady officiating, but Big Shot Bob's shot was a big part of that. 2005 finals, he's 100 years old. He's not even, it seems like he just should be out of the league at that point. And the Spurs have him because the Spurs always need a nice veteran presence. They can never say no to that specific position. And somehow he comes in in the 2005 NBA finals against Detroit Pistons, defending NBA champs. It's game five, 2-2 series, tied up, going into overtime. And Bob's just hitting shot after shot. He somehow, I don't even know what happened. I still vividly remember that game just because it was so improbable what this aging role player was doing, including hitting the game-winning three at the end of overtime to clinch that game for the Spurs in a series that they would go on to win in game seven. Even the stuff that he did that wasn't just shooting a ball through a hoop somehow fed into this narrative of a role player that is so equipped for these moments that, again, it defies comprehension. The last one that I remember, and we just laughed about and scratched our heads was 2007. The Spurs are playing the Phoenix Suns. Phoenix is the team. They're one of the great lost teams to NBA history who did not win a championship, but had so many cracks at it and probably should have, but just for whatever reason didn't. 2007, it's a 2-1 series. Phoenix is down. They're getting ready to wrap up game four, tie the series up at twos. Game five will be in Phoenix. Robert Ory, they bring him in at the end of the game to commit a foul. And he comes in. Steve Nash is driving by center court and Ori hip checks him into the scores table, sets off a little NBA fracas where a lot of peacocking and chest puffing out and nobody really wants to do anything. But as part of this fracas, Amari Stoudemire and Boris Diaw both are on the bench and they both run on the court for a second and run off and the NBA goes full rigid rule existence and says, nope, we got to suspend him for game five. So somehow Robert Ori, who had no effect whatsoever on that series and was at this point in time, just kind of a walking corpse gets two of their most important players suspended for the biggest game of the year. Game five in Phoenix of a 2-2 series, which the Spurs ended up winning and they win in six. Again, none of this seemed sustainable. And even in retrospect, I just go, I don't know how it was sustained, but it's the best case scenario ever for a role player to say, eh, I might not be much, but whenever you need me, I will be there. This is part of the equation, right? For every Elijah Wan and Kobe and Shaq and Duncan, you need your Robert Ories. You need all of those people that fill in the gaps. You need Mario, Mario Ellie, who hits huge shots with Houston back then. You need your Derek Fisher, the little weasel who somehow hits a big three-pointer once every blue moon. Spurs, I mean, the Spurs' entire roster was just people like that. You need Bruce Bowen there stepping his feet under people and rolling their ankles. Just weird stuff like that, right? The next step up, and one who I'm really thinking about after watching Game 7 of Boston... Miami over the weekend is it's a very interesting subject. It's a, it's the very good players in the regular season who everybody looks at and says that person's damn good at their sport. But then you're in the playoffs and they're somehow better. And you're kind of trying to make sense of 
is this a flash in the pan and, and is this just a one season thing? What's going on? They've just channeled some inner demon that is manifesting itself at the best possible time. Or is this what this player is in the playoffs relative to the regular season? A great player, a great example of that would be Braden Point of the Tampa Bay Lightning the last two seasons. He's currently out with injury. They're not sure if he's coming back. He got injured in game seven against Toronto round one. But the last two seasons, especially uh, the first year they won the cup when Stamkos was injured for pretty much that entire time and Tampa Bay needed somebody to just kind of fill that void. Braden Point, who was a great hockey player, nobody has ever questioned that. The last two playoffs has turned into just this otherworldly force. He's a number one center who's just doing everything at all times and at the highest possible level. It kind of defies comprehension, but now we've seen enough of Braden Point in the playoffs where I go, ah, I just trust that I'm going to get that from this player. Okay, he's not going to lead the league in scoring. Nobody's going to talk about him like McDavid and McKinnon and Austin Matthews and Leon Dreisaitl and players like that. But then when it's playoff time, you go, ah, I don't know. Braden Point is pretty high up on the list of people I want on my team when the games matter the most. The person who was really symbolizing that, going back to game seven, Miami Boston, who it's hard for me to wrap my head around, is Jimmy Butler. Jimmy Butler, who in any given season, he's floating there amongst the, you know, maybe he could make a third-team All-NBA, but usually he's there for 20 points, and he'll bitch somebody out at a strange time, and he'll have a weird press conference with Rachel Nichols, or a sit-down with Rachel Nichols to bitch at his teammates and say how he needs to be traded. Just been a strange fellow for a long time in that sense. He'll pick a fight with Eric Spolstra at the wrong time, despite the fact that Eric Spolstra is one of the best coaches of his generation. But that's just, you know what you're getting into the Jimmy Butler experience. Part of that is tied into competitiveness, which I really, really like. Does he go about it in the correct manner all the time? Uh, Most decidedly not. But you bring that kind of competitive drive to the playoffs, and suddenly you're getting a player for at least two different seasons, 2020. Miami's run to the NBA Finals in this year, losing Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Finals. You're getting a player that is significantly better and more impactful than a maybe third-team All-NBA, maybe not style of player. Because for my money, going into the NBA Finals, the best player in the NBA postseason has been Jimmy Butler. I will fight anybody who says that. I will lose because I don't fight well. But I will try and fight you because Jimmy Butler has just been a force of nature. Every single round including against Boston, who I believe is the best defense in basketball. If they're not, the best defense is Miami, but it's the two best defensive teams going head-to-head. And a team that is so equipped to throw defenders again and again at a player like Jimmy Butler that you go, it's going to be really hard to stay afloat. because They can go Marcus Smart, and they can throw Tatum, and they can throw Jalen Brown, and they can throw Grant Williams. There's just so many long, smart hard nose, versatile defenders on the Boston Celtics roster. Now, we've also seen Jimmy Butler play against another team that possessed similar capabilities. The 2020 Los Angeles Lakers, who won the NBA championship over the Miami Heat, who also was the best defensive team in basketball, who also had a lot of people of varying sizes that were all good at defense that they could throw at Jimmy Butler. And within that playoff run, a complete force of nature including beating those Celtics in the Eastern Conference Finals. And the game that I'll remember above all else, where I didn't necessarily need things to click into place to understand uh, this guy is different in the postseason than he is in the regular season. But I got it was game five because he goes toe-to-toe with LeBron. It's one of the great playoff games of LeBron's career, which the Lakers coincidentally lose before winning in game six. But 
Jimmy Butler went toe-to-toe with him. He's got 35 points, 12 rebounds, 11 assists, five steals. He plays 47 minutes. The Heat win in overtime. It was so, so impressive, not only because of the stakes of the game, but who was on the other court. The best defensive team in basketball and the best playoff performer of his entire generation and one of the best of all time in LeBron, who was playing as good as he could play. So that leads into the last two games against Boston. Where, again, Boston is equipped better than any team to try and contain a wing-style player because they can throw all those people. And Miami, they're down 3-2, game six is at Boston. It seems like a foregone conclusion. Celtics are nine-point favorites. We all expect them to just blow them out of the building. I definitely expected that. Jimmy Butler says, nah, I'm going to drop 47. I'm going to have nine rebounds. I'm going to have eight assists. We're going back to Miami for game seven. Truly sensational performance. And game seven, he pulls just kind of uh, LeBron James. That's the closest comparison that I could give because he plays all 48 minutes of game seven. He did not take him off the court. He has 35 points. He has eight rebounds. He has nine assists. Again, you just felt his presence at all times throughout game six and game seven. He misses the go-ahead three with 20 seconds to go. Miami has a furious rally. Balls in transition. Butler, maybe he could have attacked Al Horford, tried to get a layup, tried to get a foul, tried to get an and one. Instead, he pulls up, shoots a three. I don't personally have a problem with that. He misses. Celtics rebound. Mark Smart hits two free throws. You're going home. But nobody's going to fault Jimmy Butler here. I, I truly believe that. Because now we're starting to talk about a larger sample size. And I also think that you can watch a series like that and especially a game and go, you know what? Sometimes the combination of role players and stars playing well enough is too much for the one-man army to overcome. The role players, you go, yeah, Marcus Smart and Al Horford and Derek White and Grant Williams got varying degrees of them throughout the series, including in Game 7. Stars playing well enough. Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, they're still way more inconsistent than I would like. It's less than it used to be in the past, but somebody like Tatum who who's trying to ascend to that next level this year, I still go, look, man, you just, you got to give more night to night than you're currently giving if you want to be considered one of the very best players within the sport. But that mix still, the vast majority of the time is going to trump the one-man army, no matter how good that player is playing. It's the story of a large portion of LeBron's career, something that has brought me great amount of sadness and consternation within my own basketball watching life. Now, Jimmy Butler is, Jimmy Butler is incredible in the playoffs. I don't think we're going to see a renewed version of Butler in the regular season. I think he just, for whatever reason, he is what he is in the regular season. And when the stakes ratchet up, Jimmy Butler ratchets up with it. It's a very rare trait to see in a player. He somehow turned into the reverse Harden, who is one of the very rare stars that is awesome in the regular season. And for whatever reason, maybe it's the style of play, the heliocentric basketball that it's easier for teams to defend in the playoffs. Maybe it's just because so much is asked of Harden physically that by the time he's in the playoffs and asked to do everything on every offensive possession, a lot of that by his own choice, it's just too much wear and tear and he wears down and he's just not going to be as effective. I don't know, but they're kind of two people who reverse roles. Harden, the player who's won regular season MVPs that everybody says, what a great player. Oh man, he's good in his prime. You know, he's a 30 point nine assist guy every night. He's a one man offense. And in the playoffs, you go, this doesn't really work. I don't like, I don't like this. I don't like this. It's not fun. And Butler's been the opposite. NBA regular season. Okay, good. Yeah, okay, great. And 2020 and 22, you're sitting there watching him and go, I think this guy in 2020 was probably better than everybody who's not LeBron in those playoffs. 2022, I think he's been the best player in the playoffs. 
So then you step to the next level, which is the true. It's the level that we'll always remember. It's the level that really attracts you to the world of sports. It's the stars who exist, who somehow go higher in the playoffs. The very best players within their sports in the regular season. And you get to the playoffs and you go, eh, it's not realistic to expect a player who plays as good as anybody in the regular season against a lot of teams with varying interests and varying skills. It's unrealistic to say, now you're in the playoffs and it's only the best teams. And they're all game planning specifically for you. Can you actually not just sustain that performance, but can you take it even higher? This is where you get into the generational discussion. This is where you point at a, a player like LeBron. And you say, I mean, LeBron, he's winning MVPs throughout his career in the regular season. Very obviously proven he is one of the best players in the history of the sport during the regular season. And that has been better in the playoffs. It's really kind of hard to comprehend until you watch it again and again and again. And it makes sense. And you go, okay, this is just a once every however many decades type of player. LeBron's main thing, the, the thing that I'll always point to in his playoff career especially the stretch from 2012 through 2020. But you can even pluck the vast majority of his career and put it into this. You feel him every time he is on the court. For me, that's the true measure of a generational star. Not tied into any one facet of the game. You know, it's not, he's got to score. It's got to be the James Harden. He's got to be scoring or he's got to be passing in order for you to feel the weight of him in this particular game. LeBron is the person who his thumb is on the scale at all times. Happens in a variety of ways. It could be anything in any given game. It could be the score. It could be varying ways of scoring. It could be three-point shooting. It could be jump shots. It could be getting the free throw line 25 times. It could be just the post machine, just dunking on people, bowling people. It could be any variety of passings out of high pick and rolls, out of the post, just transition opportunities off of the break. There's so many ways that he could do that. It could just be him rebounding, period. A way that LeBron has asserted himself throughout his entire career because of his smarts and his physicality. It could be him defensively, just over and over in a variety of ways, whether as a help defender, as a post defender, as a one-on-one -on -one individual defender against whoever is hot. You always feel him when he is on the court. That's why for 15 years or so, LeBron, every single year, is the story of the playoffs. Because his game is somehow better when it matters most. Again, the true measure of somebody that you watch and say, I'm not going to see a lot of people like this in my lifetime, if at all. I point to a game like the 2018 finals. That's the one man army. You're not going to overcome. <laughs> Actually, the other team was not a collection of role players and stars. The other team was just a collection of stars. It was all stars. It was the Warriors with Durant and um, Steph and Clay and Draymond. And we knew Cleveland was losing the series. There was no possible way. Kyrie was gone. LeBron had dragged, and I mean dragged, this carcass of a Cleveland team through the East. They won game seven against Boston with LeBron playing 48 minutes in that game, much like Jimmy Butler. Just dragging them, dragging them. Then it's game one. They're on the road in Golden State. And I'm like, they they just, they can't even make a game competitive. I don't know how they will. They're just too reliant upon a bunch of bums. And LeBron's just, I mean, he's old. And game one is as good of an offensive game as you can watch. From a player that every single resource on the other team 
and their resources are vast, defensively and offensively. It was concentrated on LeBron, and instead he's still scoring 50, he's drilling threes, he's running transition. It was just, it was a breathtaking performance. I was so excited about it because I thought Cleveland was going to win, and at least they would win the one game. Then we have the great J.R. Smith gaffe at the end. We have an overturned block charge that went against LeBron that was quite controversial, and Golden State pulls it in overtime, they end up sweeping them. But it's just another one of those games that I watch and go, this is special. This is just special stuff. And I'm very happy that I get to watch this person play their sport. So I'm bringing up LeBron because what we are watching in hockey right now and what we are going to start watching tonight is really special stuff. Uh, Tonight, game one, abs Oilers. Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, it's just every other night, it's going to be, I I think it's just, it's going to be incredible. And the Avalanche and the Oilers, they have four players right now that kind of represent the very best of this sport. And it's, it's hard to compare anybody to LeBron because that's just an unfair comparison. But to varying degrees, you have four players that are on that scale. Maybe not to the level of LeBron, although one of them I think is on that trajectory in Connor McDavid. But you have four players that I watch and go, these are, these are people that you do not get to watch often in your sport. Nathan McKinnon, Kale McCarr on the Colorado side, Connor McDavid, Leon Dreisaitl on the Edmonton side. Four of the best players in hockey. They have been that since they entered into the league. McKinnon, McDavid, and Dreisaitl over the last five seasons they are the top three scorers in the NHL in the regular season. Makar is not because Makar is now in his third season and he's, he should win the Norris Trophy. He's the best defenseman in hockey. And if you've watched Kel Makar in this regular season or in these playoffs, you understand from a talent standpoint, from an impact standpoint, how you feel him. He's every bit the equal of these players. Now, what's intense and why I'm bringing up LeBron is because all four of these dudes are playing even better in the playoffs. We're talking about Four of the best players in the sport throughout the regular season. You can throw Austin Matthews into that mix. Beyond that, I think we're talking about four of the five best skaters in hockey. Period. In the regular season. And now all of them are playing even better in the playoffs. It's another one of those things you go, how, how, how is this possible? You have set the bar so high for yourself by what you do in the regular season. It seems almost impossible to match that, much less supersede it. But then you have playoff Nathan McKinnon, who's been there his entire career, his rookie season in 2014 till now, every single year he's been in the playoffs. McKinnon is a dude I point to, and and it's the same feeling to LeBron where I go, this is a sport that is very different from basketball. It's a lot harder to notice individuals again and again and again, unless they are scoring. That's not the case with these dudes. That's not the case with Nathan McKinnon, because if you watch a Colorado game, you will feel him every time he is on the ice. That is the only way I can describe what he does. Go and watch game five against St. Louis. He has the stat sheet. He has the iconic goal. Doesn't result in an avalanche win, but he's got a hat trick and an assist. He has literally the best goal I've ever watched in the playoffs with two minutes and change to go. One on five through the entire St. Louis Blues roster and then flipping it over Billy Huso's shoulder. That's a game that you watch and you go, okay. Not only did I understand the scoring, but I understood every single shift this guy comes out and it's the force of nature dynamic. It's just something that feels inevitable that you cannot stop like a tornado 
like a flood. It's just coming and you go, well, what do you do? Mother nature pissed on us and that's going to be the way of life. But every single person out of these four stars can tap into that same vein. Tell Makar, I'd say game two against Nashville, this year's playoffs. If you just want the one thing to go watch, you can't play better as a defenseman. You just can't. He ends up scoring the overtime game winner. So we know to celebrate Makar, but it was every shift you felt him. He was in the defensive zone. He was in the offensive zone. He was everywhere. Connor McDavid. He is the best player in the world. That doesn't pain me to say because I love the Avalanche. I love Kale McCarr. I love Nathan McKinnon. I think both of them are generational talents, which is wild that two of them are on the roster at the same time. I think McDavid is on the trajectory and kind of currently there of being a once in a lifestyle player. I, I really do believe that. Um, I'm getting similar vibes at this point in his career to LeBron James. That's the best way I can describe Connor McDavid in a sport. Again, that it is a lot harder to identify how a player is impacting the game constantly on every shift. You never have that question with Connor McDavid. Go and watch a handful of these Calgary Flames games, but really, if you're wanting to watch just the McDavid effect, game six, game seven against the Kings. Oilers down 3-2 in the series. They have to win on the road in game six, at home in game seven, and McDavid, much like McKinnon, uh, it's just, it's the force of nature. It's a player who, as soon as he's on the ice, Space starts to create. It's a little like Steph Curry. Even when he doesn't have the puck, much less when he does, you feel the other team start to restrict and go uh, defend the most important areas of the ice because as soon as he has it, it's an eye blink and he is at the net. And he's either trying to score or creating for somebody else. Evander Kane's going to have 100 goals. Zach Hyman's going to have 100 goals. It's just, just pucker up and hold on for dear life. And even with that, you're still not going to be able to stop this guy. Go ask the Flames, one of the best defensive teams in hockey all regular season. Jacob Markstrom, a Vezina Trophy finalist for best goaltender in hockey, and he was a complete pumpkin in the series. More importantly, the entire defensive structure of the Calgary Flames, which again, coached by Daryl Sutter, Stanley Cup winning coach, knows hockey, knows how to build a winning defensive system. It was just in shambles, strictly because of the way that McDavid was able to just take the puck and say, ah, I can pirouette it 100 miles an hour. I can slice and dice and go behind the net and stop at full speed and go back this way and pass this way and shoot this. It's just, it's too much. And he's scoring the game winner. Overtime, game five, Oilers are moving on. Now, I felt a little bit bad for his, I don't even want to call him sidekick because it does a disservice to how good Leon Dreisaitl is. A man who has a heart trophy to his name as the MVP of hockey in the regular season already. And I felt slightly bad for him because McDavid is just, he's the story of hockey. He should be. He's incredible. Everybody should be watching him. Anybody who cares about sports. But Dreisaitl, who was coming off a leg injury in the King series, who was completely hampered in game seven. And I'm just going, I don't know what you're going to get out of him in this series. The entire Calgary series was a showcase for the power, the speed, the vision, the ability to put your thumb on the scale on every single shift. He has 17 points in the five games. It took Edmonton to eliminate Calgary. That is incredible. That's over three points per game. He actually had at least three points in every single game. We're not talking about uh, an incredible 6.9 and then, okay, fill in the gaps here. We're talking every single game. Leon Dreisaitl's out there playing through an injury and he's still balling the hell out. It's the best possible showcase the NHL could ask for. I truly do believe that. Avs Oilers, especially 
the way that the Oilers are playing right now, where they do not feel like an underdog, they just feel like a contender who's fully understood what they are as a hockey team. It's the best possible showcase this sport could ask for. So now we're sitting here, we're going into game one. I'm sick to my stomach. I'm nervous. I'm excited. I'm all of the things at once. I'm going, okay, all right, okay. What type of series are we going to get? Because this has the entire spectrum of what this show is about. Is it going to be about just the star power strictly? Whose star power is greater than anyone else? Is it just McDavid takes a series over and that's what we remember? Is it McKinnon? Is it McCarr? Is it Dreisaitl? Is it just, is it a goaltender series? Is it a, one of Mike Smith or Darcy Kemper melts into a puddle? That's always something that can happen within the sport. Is it just, these stars are so good that you cannot stop them. And so you kind of, they cancel each other out to agree. And then depth becomes the story. Is it one of those series? We saw that even last round. As good as all of these players were, you still, you always, you always, you always, again, I'm pulling out the Bible. I'll get up on the dais and I'll start thumping and say, you always need depth to win, no matter how good your stars are. Game six, Avalanche Blues. You do not want to lose that game because then you're going back home for game seven. And oh boy, there's going to be a lot of pressure. And the Avs are down 2-1 in that game in the third period. They're just pushing at Huso and they can't break through. JT Confer scored the first goal, a man who's been completely absent all playoffs. Third line has not had a lot of success. He hits a, an incredible wrister for his second goal of the night, midway through the third. Full-on rush, takes a pass from Byram, puts it over the top corner of Billy uh, Huso. Now we're tied at twos. Looks like we're going into overtime. Oh, wait a second. Who is the person that slaps it in from the left face-off circle with five seconds to go on the clock? Darren Helm, fourth liner. Your third and fourth line generates all three goals in that game. That's why the Avalanche are moving on. You need that. You always need your depth. The biggest goal of the Oilers series, in my opinion, was not overtime winner from McDavid in game five. They're up three in that series. The biggest goal of that series was the game-winning goal of game four. Oilers are up 2-1 in the series. They got game four at home. They're up 3-0. Looks like they're just going to steamroll them. Calgary tightens it down. The third goal is the worst goal you, you will ever see. I've never seen a goal like it. Rasmus Anderson, 131 feet away. Just throws it up. Mike Smith loses it in the crowd, bounces into the net. Next thing you know, it's a tie game and you're starting to pucker up. You're going, oh boy. And Ryan Nugent Hopkins, who is one of the depth pieces that has had to step up if the Oilers are wanting to advance. Well, he does. Bangs home a goal with three minutes to go. That's the difference in that game. That's why, that's one of the reasons why the Oilers are moving on. So you see, it's it's everything. It's <laughs> You're looking at the role player level. You're looking at the mid-level player. You're looking at the star player. You can get any type of performances. We've already seen this incredible stuff. But my hopes are sky high for this series, Oilers and Avs, because it represents everything that is great about hockey. And I mean everything. Depth matters, obviously. Depth matters, depth matters. But only if you have the stars. And for both of these squads, why I am so freaking fired up for this series you cannot do better than the sustained star power of Nate McKinnon and Kel McCarr and Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl. Thank you for listening to The Chris Rawls Show. This podcast is produced by Weston Tanner. Do not forget to sign up for my newsletter, please. It is very easy to do. Go to chrisrawls.com. Hit the subscribe button. Every Wednesday morning, it will be in your inbox. And I thank you for doing that service to humanity and to me. Thank you. Enjoy your day. I'll be back to talk on Friday.